Yesterday, I took a break from my morning doom scrolling through anger, pain, fear and aggression to check my H-index. I checked the number of times my publication had been cited by other authors not to cheer myself up is almost as depressing as doom scrolling. Rather, I checked my H-index because I needed to create a metricized, accountable, legible version of myself for a grant application. I had to demonstrate that I have impact. Now, sometimes it's hard to say that we, as anthropologists, create impact, that we impact the world. If you told your mum that I became an anthropologist because I wanted to change the world, she might legitimately ask, and how do you do that? And if you told your colleagues at a conference, I became an anthropologist because I wanted to change the world, they might snigger in your general direction. See, anthropology is great at critique, at deconstructing, but its ability to reconstruct, to meaningfully contribute to political practice, is often less clear. It wasn't always the case. Anthropologists used to be quite happy to join colonial projects, for example, measuring their political worth by the amount of heads that they measured. And I think that legacy has, rightly of course, made us be a little bit more careful. And of course, in anthropology, there's also less need, when compared to our cousins in sociology, to frame our research around societal problems that need to be addressed. And there's plenty of anthropologists whose research agenda is driven by their curiosity, and I think there's nothing inherently wrong with that, by the way. But anthropology's failure to regularly intervene in the world is, I think, probably also because in contemporary academia, there's a lot of cynicism around the, both the production of knowledge and also the motivations for those doing the producing. It's not only the aforementioned metricized knowledge production that creates this cynicism, I think. It's also because often the radical, critical scholarship that many of us read is created by deeply horrible people. Um, their, their sole motivation seems to be recruiting courtiers for the kingdoms of their egos rather than creating a more socially just world. But in spite of all of this, uh, I'm deeply optimistic, deeply optimistic about anthropology and scholarship in general. And this is what this audio essay is all about. I've called this audio essay From Despair to Where, Anthropology, Critique, Political Practice and the Case for Radical Optimism. So I have to apologise for starting with such a despairing opening. But I think you probably needed that because if I dive straight in feet first with all of the optimism, you probably would have switched off and stopped listening and pulled me naive. So my optimism, where does it come from? Well, it comes from speaking with a slew of Europe-based anthropologists, mostly Europe-based anthropologists, who've been working at international or state organizations or within social movements and on distinctly political projects. And you're gonna hear with them all very, very soon. I promise to stop speaking. And I spoke with them about the role of critique and anthropology's possibility to move from critique to political practice. And I return to the question of radical optimism at the very end of this audio essay. But I want to mention now that whilst optimism is similar to hope, it shares many similarities with hope, it's also distinct from it. So if hope refers to wanting or expecting something good to happen in the future, or at least something good for those who are hoping, um, then optimism, I think, is a broader disposition. It's an orientation imbued with hope, a quality of being that believes something good will happen. Now, the optimism I detect, I'm going to say is radical because it goes to the roots of anthropology. It suggests structural change within our practices, ones that orientate the discipline so that it pursues social justice. As I said, now you're going to hear from lots of anthropologists. But another good question might be, why did I make this essay? Well, apart from a deep desire to escape despair, it was two anthropologists who made me do it. And I went to meet them on top of a mountain not far from Geneva, and they sent me on my mission. Chapter 1. Critiquing, quote-unquote, good people. 
my name is Agathe Mora. I'm a, an anthropologist of international law and human rights. And I'm an editor at Allegri Lab. I'm also uh, the co-convener of the network uh, LawNet at the European Association of Social Anthropologists and a lecturer at the University of Sussex where I teach anthropology and international development. So I'm Julie Biot. I'm a political and legal anthropologist, part of the Allegra Lab editorial collective. Um, I'm also one of the conveners of LONET, uh, the European Association of Social Anthropologists Network for Law, International Governance, Rights and Politics and many stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm also uh, an associate professor of anthropology at the Geneva Graduate Institute. Agathe and Julie were thinking a lot about anthropology and whether it can move from critique to political practice because of a workplace experience. And we got sacked, basically. Yeah, they got sacked, but maybe a little bit more context. They weren't sacked from their day jobs as lecturers and professors, but rather by the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, where they were both hired. We were hired as anthropologists um, to look at diversity issues and um, the um, kind of the culture, the organisational culture, what they call it, whatever that is. Mm. <laughs> and um, and it was it was really great because we got access we we got access to all kind of interesting documents and to people, um, but very quickly realised that. Um, there were so many hidden skeletons and there were people really, really needed a space to kind of open up and talk to us in confidentiality. And so we started listening and just take notes. And then we wrote a report based on these really kind of difficult interviews that we did. And um, I think it was, it was um, not what management was hoping to find. And that's a kind of a, there's a kind of paradox here, because on the one hand, this organization, they want to be seen as, you know, transparent. They want to be seen as upholding by the principle of uh, accountability that has become, you know, this kind of buzzwords in institutions everywhere. And yet they want to be able to control the narrative. A desire to control the narrative is understandable to some degree, given the rise of under-research hot takes that cherry-pick lines from reports. You know, paradoxically, this idea of accountability, which, you know, is a good thing. <laughs> we all want accountability. But, you know, how has that pursuit of accountability manifested in practice in, in lots of different areas? And, you know, it has had these perverse effects that there was Jane Cowan, Emeritus Professor of Anthropology at the University of Sussex. And as she went on to point out to me over a cup of tea in her kitchen in Brighton, England, there have been increasing demands for accountability in lots of areas, including those relating to human rights, justice and higher education. But we're also witnessing a conjuncture between the rise in demand for accountability, audit cultures and datification. The forms in which you know, things are measured and counted are become very standardized and and precisely lose all that 
doubt, ambiguity, and, and, and is being organized by, you know, by those who decide how to organize it beyond, beyond us. And if we can't imagine why that might be a problem for others, like those who work in human rights organizations or for activists involved in social justice, then maybe we can imagine why it might be a problem for ourselves. When our work is made accountable as part of the standardized measures that become a central pillar in neoliberal higher education, I think it loses some of its value. It's not only the institutions we study that are being attacked by, let's say, neoliberalism, to say things very quickly. It's also our own academic institutions where critique uh, is not necessarily what is the most value output of research, uh, where the dominant paradigm is the one of positivism once more, right? Um, where we need to be able to quantify our output. It's the cynic who knows the worth of research and not its value. Now, I can understand critiquing social movements or organisations that some have claimed are the last utopias in a world that feels like it's going to hell in a reusable supermarket bag might seem counterproductive or even self-defeating. But I think ethnographic critique of the so-called good people has immense value. We need to critique humanitarian organizations that frame human life in basic terms, that create a world in which home is just a shelter, meals are only food, and living is simply surviving. And so I think we have every, every right, you know, as citizens of this world to, to discuss whether this is the forms of life that make sense on this planet, especially nowadays with, you know, increasing displacements of populations, uh, their encampment uh, on Greek islands. Uh, I mean, do we want, I mean, can't we see something similar to, I mean, uh, a mild version of a concentration camp? I mean, I think we have the right to ask these questions. And the duty. Yeah. Uh, this is what we do as anthropologists. This is, I think this is our political project, is this project of, you know, deconstructive, iterative critique of everyday life under certain regimes. But at the same time, I also think that we, as much as we, we should critique and discuss and open this conversation and denaturalize, uh, you know, things that are seen as, you know, good, inherently good, and show the kind of uh, the other side of the coin, I think we need also to be able to reconstruct, right? Yeah. And, and to make suggestions for it. Yeah improvement. We need to be creative about the way we intervene in the world. Chapter 2. Finding anthropologists who are creative about the way they intervene in the world. In the past eight years I've been involved in a lawsuit brought by a Peruvian farmer against a German energy company. And this case is all about holding major polluters responsible for climate change. That was Noah Walker Crawford, legal anthropologist, climate justice activist and researcher at University College London. I met him in a busy noisy pub in England for an overpriced pint. So the plaintiff in this case lives in the Peruvian Andes where people are affected by glacial retreat, which in the long term causes water scarcity, but in the short term the problem is that there's too much water and there's actually a risk of flooding caused by climate change. 
And in this case, uh, the plaintiff is uh, trying to get the company to contribute financially to measures to reduce the risk of flooding in Peru. And the company is suing is called RWE, which is an energy company. Their main business is coal-fired power. They've been around for over 100 years, and in that time, they've uh, made a substantial contribution to climate change. A Peruvian farmer can take a German energy company to court because when we think about the climate, we're all neighbors. This lawsuit uses neighborhood law. The basic argument is to say that in times of climate change, we're all neighbors. And if we're neighbors, that means we have certain rights and responsibilities. And so the Peruvian farmer in this case is saying that the company, RWE, should be a good neighbor and they should take responsibility for the contribution they've made to climate change and help him deal with the problems that's causing in the Peruvian Andes. A critique of Noah's research and the wider case in which he's involved might be that he's lost control. He's not setting the research agenda. It's being created by the climate activists and Peruvian farmers. A response to this might be good. Why not have those who are directly affected by something set the agenda, especially those who suffer thanks to vast global inequalities structured by processes dating back to the onset of European colonialism? I think this is something Matthew C. Canfield, anthropologist of transnational agrarian movements and the right to food, might say. He took time off from being assistant professor at Leiden Law School in the Netherlands to share a locally and democratically controlled waffle with me. I think the calls for decoloniality that we're seeing across the social sciences are really asking us to change the way that we think about our interlocutors. And one of the things that Rita Segato talks about is a move towards responsive anthropology, where actually we are accountable to the communities that have been the objects of anthropological study. So I think this is an amazing suggestion, to practice anthropology that is responsible to and answerable to those who have for centuries served as anthropologists' objects of study, to respond to the historical projects of such groups. We're moving towards a more participatory method of ethnographic research where actually anthropologists have their questions framed by those communities. Oftentimes, we construct the questions based on our own theoretical ideas and then go and do ethnography. But when we start actually from the needs of communities and the kinds of questions that they have, that is being more accountable to them and providing them with the resources and answers to questions that they can use then for, for their struggles in, in liberation and bettering their lives. Noah's work is one example. Another comes from Lizalot Viane, principal investigator of the Rivers Project, which she sat down on a windy day to tell me all about. I've been collaborating with um, Belkis Izquierdo, who is an indigenous Arawaku judge in the special jurisdiction system of Colombia. And in 2019, as part of the whole peace process and in that uh, special jurisdiction, she recognized the concept of territory, indigenous territory, as a victim of an armed conflict, which has been, which sparked a huge debate not only in Colombia but beyond, because normally in human rights, it's the humans who are victims of human rights violations, not something which is called a territory, which from an indigenous perspective is indeed, for example, but she uh, explains that she learned from the indigenous Awat 
uh, authorities is that during the war, many dead bodies were um, dropped in, in many rivers and the rivers received those dead bodies and also suffered because it is a living being. So how do you repair a river who also suffered from the violence created by humans? And that's um, extremely complex when it comes to a legal system which does not recognize that rivers, um, water sources, mountains, sacred space that simply does not exist in our legal thinking and beyond our legal thinking because a river is a river, a mountain is a mountain, it's a natural resource, it's something that has an economic value that gives us, um, it is a resource so we humans can live but that's it, that's nothing more, it does not have an intrinsic more deeper value of dignity of something that should be protected and having those conversations with her for example we organized uh, in the framework of the international indigenous people's day which is the 9th of august um, a speech circle in spanish it would be like un, un circula palabra bringing together uh, her and then different indigenous lawyers from different parts of latin america to start discussing about um, nature, territory as a victim, and also thinking about reparation. Chapter 3. Where's the line between activism and activist anthropology? So I want to start this chapter with a small confession. I've always been a little bit wary of anthropologists who study activists. The first time I ever met a real live anthropologist was when two anthropology students joined a group of us anarcho-leaning leftists who were travelling up to Scotland from Liverpool to protest against the G8 in 2005. They attended our meetings, they made friends with us, they interviewed us, but I felt they never really explained what they were doing. Then afterwards they disappeared to write their dissertations or whatever, and I bumped into one of them in town once and they were almost embarrassed to see me. So a little later, I was at another G8, this one in Germany in 2007, and a group of us, we'd all formed into different affinity groups to block a road, and it turned out that two of the eight people in this affinity group were doing their PhDs on activism. And it sort of annoyed me. It annoyed me, I think, because I didn't really believe that they believed in the cause. The stakes were much lower for them. Their dual reason for being there diluted the purpose for me, the, the young, overly zealous lefty I was. And... I feel a bit better about them now because I've come to realise that there is no strict line between activists and anthropologists or academics, and nor should there have to be. In fact, especially if you're a scholar who's writing about people who are trying to change the world for a better, you might benefit from being in the thick of something political. Because it turns out, if you're there and being political with the activists, you might meet people who have read scholarship, the same scholarship as you, but who are not scholars. And I was reminded of this when I met with Rafael Carano Lelis, a PhD student in international law and anthropology. I'm just outside the library at the Geneva Institute. Actually, I don't see this uh, distinction so watershed between academia and social movements. And it's actually the case that very often those authors that are informing my work, because it's a very specific type of work, right? It's informed by the colonial feminist and queer theory. And these circulate a lot uh, between the activists. He researches how the queer transnational movement mobilizes human rights to their benefit. And in his fieldwork, he sees the activist slash academic boundary collapsing to some degree. But as he explained to me, just because scholarship is used by activists, it doesn't mean that they approach scholarship in the same way. 
because they don't they don't want to debate ideas, but because they want to use a certain theoretical framework, for instance, uh, to align to their own purpose. Noah Walker Crawford, who we met earlier, also sees similar and understandable instrumental logics at play within activist narratives relating to the topics of which they care about. But he also highlights how anthropology can play a crucial role in furthering activism's critical edge. Anthropology and activism can be seen as two different endeavors, separate endeavors, in the sense that activism is all about uh, simple answers of saying, this is bad, and this is, and that's why we need to do something about it. You know, activist narratives, you know, activist storytelling is about good and bad, you know, uh, black and white. While anthropology points to complexity. It tells us how everything is much more complicated than everyone thinks. But at the same time, I think there can be a productive interplay between anthropology and activism. So, uh, you know, activism can involve simplistic answers to, to, you know, the problems of the world. And anthropology asks critical questions. It asks questions that might be uncomfortable for, you know, for activist narratives that might question, you know, these, these uh, you know, simplistic arguments that activists are sometimes making. Uh, but the world is full of contradictions and I think anthropology can help us deal with these contradictions and my hope is that uh, doing that, asking critical questions, will ultimately make activism stronger, you know. Grassroots community groups, radical activist circles and the like might well welcome the insights of anthropologists who researched them. And I say might because there's plenty of scepticism towards middle class academics researching within working class political movements. But what about the larger organisations that seek to make an impact in the world? Do these organisations see the benefits to having anthropologists in their midst? Chapter 4, What Anthropologists Bring to the Party I'm Samuel Shapiro from Université Laval in Canada. I, I work in political anthropology, I research institutions um, of the state, um, uh, forms of governance and, um, and related matters. Samuel is conducting an ethnography of everyday life at the National Assembly of Quebec. I met him in an alcove on the eighth floor of the Quebec Parliament building. I mean, when I found what they said to me in a word was that I was asking questions that they weren't asking. I was thinking about things as an academic that they couldn't as practitioners because they were doing their jobs and their jobs were to, you know, uh, do, the, do the verbatim debates or to prepare a... Um, or to prepare the minutes, or to, you know, speak on some issue as a selected official in, in in debate. It was it was just it, it was very complimentary things. But but I was thinking about issues they weren't thinking about. I was asking questions they weren't asking, and they were doing things that I wasn't doing. So I felt that it it was less an issue of, of agreeing or disagreeing. It was more a question of, oh, um, that's interesting. That's a very interesting question, and and I never thought about that. I never had the time to. Samuel was generally welcomed and appreciated at the Parliament. However, especially when anthropologists start publishing their research, their presence and their insights aren't always as welcome. Okay. Uh, my name is Pedro Silva Rocha Lima. I am a lecturer in disaster management at the University of Manchester. 
Pedro, who I met at an even noisier pub than Noah, started his research because he was puzzled as to why the International Committee of the Red Cross was working in Brazil when there wasn't a war. He became interested in how a humanitarian organisation translated the work they do in a war zone into places facing chronic violence, like Rio de Janeiro. He went to the International Committee of the Red Cross knowing that his presence there as a researcher, as an anthropologist or whatever, would be a sensitive thing. And so he went there being very careful. He knew the limits of what he was allowed to observe and he took field notes in front of people so they were aware of what he was doing when he was doing it. And when he was ready, after doing all his research and doing all his analysis to submit a research article to a journal, he first sent it to his interlocutors. And things were initially fine. People really read his work and gave him feedback. Some people even gave him feedback about his theoretical framing and his understanding of a particular theorist. But then the headquarters got involved. When he went to headquarters and headquarters had their own say on what they thought about the paper, uh, things turned a little sour, um, to say the least. Um, and there the organization pushed back on many aspects of the work um, of, in terms of what I could reveal, what kind of information I could include. Um, and basically, I went through an entire very burdensome process and very, very tiring and taxing process of trying to negotiate what I could write down and what I could could not. And you know, what was guiding me through the entire process, I guess, was just what is essential for the ethnography here? What is essential to make the theory that I want to make and to make the arguments that I want to make? Uh, and can I make those points uh, while also making the modifications that they're asking me to make? After hearing such accounts and remembering Julie and Agat's tale of sacking that started us on this journey, we might despair at our chances to research the big and powerful organisations doing good in the world. But as a radical optimist, I'm always looking for hope. I think you're never going to be able to fully produce this fine-grained, detailed ethnographic accounts of the inner workings of powerful organisations when you need their authorization to get, to get access. Um, but there might be ways we might find of recruiting allies within these organizations that are uh, familiar, familiar with or that are um, sympathetic to ethnographic accounts, to anthropological accounts. And I think, I think finding these alliances and building these alliances can really help you find ways of chipping in and having peering through uh, a, small, a, small, a small gap, a small little hole in the, in the black box uh, of these big powerful institutions. Sometimes, especially when talking about the actions or policies of large organisations, it can be hard to remember that they are peopled places and that these people contain multitudes, that such people exceed their role within any given institution. And one of the ways in which we are aware of the fullness of people is through the relationships we develop with them. Here's Pedro again. So I think the main takeaway point for me at, the, at this moment, as I'm thinking about it, is sometimes the importance of the relationships that we develop during fieldwork and how those re uh, relationships, you know, the relationships that we develop through long-term ethnographic fieldwork can still matter when doing work in a big organization, in a big, powerful organization. Conclusion towards radical optimism. In 2021, the anthropology publishing platform Allegra Lab, where Julie, Agat and I are all editors, published an editorial in which we proclaimed ourselves to be radically optimistic. We said, and here I quote, We know that to move forward we have to be aware of the structures and inequalities that hold us back. 
All the stuff that frames our interactions and curtails our dreams. It's not a naive optimism we're embracing, but one which we expect things will have to get messy. We dare to be optimistic, to take a stance against individuated competition and for academia as a collective endeavour, opening up spaces for creativity, intellectual curiosity and the imagining of alternative futures. So optimism, that's an orientation imbued with hope, can be something both individual or something collective. And collective optimism emerges under certain structural conditions, but not for everyone, just for some. Some people feel profoundly unoptimistic. And so I think one of the conditions holding back the development of optimism is a feeling of being stuck in a rut, which is to say optimism needs the possibility to imagine forward momentum in life or the projects that you're involved with. And I think that the project of anthropology is something to be optimistic about. At least I think so having spoken to all the anthropologists that you heard from above. But aside from the analysis of, of what they said, I'm also making a case here, along with others, for a radically optimistic anthropology. This is a political move, arguing for anthropology that we'd like to see more of in the future. And of course we need to be careful about overstating what anthropology and anthropologists can do, especially when we're working with quote-unquote real people who are doing quote-unquote real things in the quote-unquote real world, and what we're doing is writing journal articles that sometimes people read and sometimes people cite and sometimes people cite without reading them. So if I'd found a group of anthropologists who researched less explicitly political themes and who, like most researchers, most parts of the world were by and large interested in thinking about their scholarly practices in a more narrowly defined sense, you know, publishing, teaching, and that's it. Then I imagine I would have found different forms of optimism in regards to anthropology's place in the world. So in this sense, the optimism that I'm talking about, it resonates with a strand of anthropological literature identified by Kleisten Janssen back in 2016 that not only finds hopeful political alternatives amongst those with whom they research, in the case of this essay, anthropologists, but also wants to push anthropology into becoming something more politically relevant. This involves, for many, going beyond critique because critique is or has become part and parcel of the contours of contemporary thought and thus fails to radically challenge it. So critique, in the sense, has become its own niche within the wider intellectual world, one that can be compartmentalised and sometimes ignored. So I think that if critique stops at critique, if it's only deconstruction and not reconstruction, then it can lead to despair, and despair is not a good basis for political change. In this essay, we've met anthropologists who've gone beyond critique for critique's sake, anthropologists who've creatively intervened in the world in ways that blur the scholar-activist categories and centre anthropology's tentative, non-absolutist mode of knowledge creation. Now, I would suggest that attempts at political practice by anthropologists, combined with the work of those who critique the international organisations and social movements that actively seek to intervene in the world so that their interventions can be more effective in achieving social justice, well, these, these can help create and structure the conditions for a critical, radical optimism to emerge. And that gives me plenty of reason not to despair.
Thank you so much for listening to this audio essay. As you may or may not have realized, I did not in fact traverse all around the continent and even to North America to speak to some of my favorite anthropologists. But in fact, I met them all at a workshop. That workshop being one organized by Lornet of the European Association for Social Anthropologists. It took place on the 12th of May, 2023 at the University of Sussex. Thank you so much to the conveners, Julibio and Agat Mora for inviting me to make this audio essay. Thank you again so much for listening and goodbye.